Welcome to another What Matters Now, in which I, Amanda Borshel-Dan, speak with the Times of Israel senior analyst, Chaviv Ratigur. Hi, Chaviv. Thank you for joining me from Australia. Hi, Amanda. Thanks for having me from Australia, where I should note it's 11 <laughs> o'clock at night. So, you know, I'm trying to be coherent here. We'll, we'll get it done. I mean, you always try at least, right, Chaviv? And we love you for it. Trying is the important part. We are going to discuss UNRWA, the United Nations Relief and Works Agency for Palestine Refugees in the Near East. Khaviv has some insight into the agency and the ripple effect it causes in the Middle East, but I just want to start with a few facts. So UNRWA is for 5.9 million registered Palestinian refugees, 1.6 million in Gaza, 901,000 in the West Bank and East Jerusalem, 2.4 million in Jordan, 487,000 in Lebanon, and 450,000 in Syria. All of these numbers are taken from the UNRWA website itself. It was mandated by the United Nations General Assembly to serve, quote, Palestine refugees. And the term was defined in 1952 as any person whose, quote, normal place of residence was Palestine during the period the 1st of June, 1946 to the 15th of May, 1948, and who lost both home of the 1948 conflict. So obviously, there are a lot more refugees, 5.9 million refugees, who didn't necessarily live in this area during this time period. Khaviv, talk a little bit about that, first of all. Right. Well, you know, the, the dramatic story um, of the last week, slightly more, is the find that under UNRWA headquarters in Gaza, uh, there was this Hamas, massive Hamas essentially cyber headquarters. Um, and that's something the Times of Israel has covered very, very well. Um, and it was an astonishing find that put UNRWA back on the map. We've seen UNRWA funding pulled over the last month by a lot of its donor countries because it turned out that some UNRWA people, there's a big fight now, debate now, pro-Palestinian forces and the West activists are saying that in fact uh, there's not enough evidence and, and the Israelis are absolutely convinced that UNRWA on the ground is utterly infested with Hamas. But the point is that back and forth really raises these deeper questions. As you said, we're talking about millions of people. The Israeli problem with UNRWA isn't these little problems. And it's not a little problem that an official technical UN employee, UNRWA's 13,000 employees on the ground are UN employees. The problem isn't that UN employees may be taking part in the terror organization that runs the place. A lot of UN and generally international aid agencies all over the world in the most troubled spots and places run by organizations that essentially behave like mafias are necessarily have to compromise and work with the forces on the ground if they're going to deliver aid. Honest brokers can make, people who, who sympathize with UNRWA can make that argument. There are a lot deeper problems with UNRWA, with the Israeli arguments about UNRWA. There are really... There's simple, shallow, simple ones. You know, some UNRWA people took part in October 7. There's Hamas manages to get its people, its loyalists, sometimes its actual members, into the UNRWA ranks in Gaza. These are the simple, shallow points. The deeper points, you hinted at just with those numbers. Something like 700,000 people between 1946 and 48. Palestinian Arabs, by the way, Technically, there are some Israeli Jews who fall under that category, but they're not taken care of by UNRWA. 
But something like 700,000 people in 1948 count as those Palestine refugees. That's the technical term under UNRWA. UNRWA's rules actually allow it to expand that definition without them having, in other words, anyone they deem in need of assistance in some way connected to 1948, they can add into the list. They don't even have to have been people who were actually kicked out or fled in 48. And technically, the UNRWA rules also say um, that it's by male line descent. UNRWA in practice includes female line descent. Long story short, those 700,000 have ballooned into 6 million. There are 6 million people taken care of by UNRWA, recipients of aid from UNRWA in Lebanon, in Syria, in Jordan, in the West Bank, in Gaza, in East Jerusalem. And that itself is something astonishing and strange because there's one other UN refugee agency in the world, the UNHCR, UN Refugee Agency, and its job is to go into a refugee situation, find everyone places to live, find everyone ways to integrate into the country to which they fled, and reduce the number of refugees in the world. But UNRWA, because it defines refugees by descent, and all descent from that pivotal moment of 1948 makes you a refugee, actually expands the number of refugees. And every generation, the group grows. What's astonishing is over 2 million people in Jordan who are Jordanian citizens How can a Jordanian citizen living in Jordan be a refugee? But under UNRWA's definition, being a Jordanian citizen in the country of Jordan, you are still a Palestinian refugee. And so UNRWA creates a real anomaly in how the international community understands what a refugee is. And it creates it only in the Palestinian case. No other refugee group. There are 100 million refugees in the 20th century. There were about as many Jewish refugees from the Arab world as there were Arab refugees from Palestine in 1948. But none of them are still refugees, certainly not their descendants. That is a unique category established for Palestinians that creates these real oddball situations in which millions of civilian citizens of a country they are living in still count under law, under General Assembly resolutions, as refugees. So we're talking about those, those deeper problems, those deeper ideological problems, And that really is an ideological point. They're not refugees in the sense that they fled somewhere and have to be taken care of in an emergency because they fled. They're refugees in the sense that UNRWA reflects as an organization the Palestinian ideological demand that 1948 never have happened. And that's why Israelis see UNRWA as as an enemy, because it's an attempt by Arab countries to reverse 1948 in the view of Israelis. Do you or your clients have a commercial collection matter that's going nowhere? The Sarachuk Law Firm specializes in the most challenging collection matters, whether it is a single matter or a portfolio of cases. They are based in New York with relationships around the world. Sarachuk's proprietary databases and tried and proven methods have earned them an unmatched reputation for success in getting their clients what they're owed. They work on a contingency fee basis, so they're only compensated when they succeed. The Sarachek Law Team strongly supports Israel. You can reach the Sarachek Team at www.sarachechlawfirm.com. That's S-A-R-A-C-H-E-K lawfirm.com or at 646-403-9775. 
The proceeding is an attorney advertisement and past results are no guarantee of future performance. I want to give a few more facts that I found on the UNRWA site. There are 58 recognized Palestine refugee camps in Jordan, Lebanon, Syria, the Gaza Strip, and the West Bank, including East Jerusalem. And I took this from a section in which they talk about infrastructure and, and rebuilding and things like that. And it says, quote, over the years, these camps have transformed from temporary tent cities into hyper-congested masses of multi-story buildings with narrow alleys characterized by high concentrations of poverty and extreme overcrowding. The camps are considered to be among the densest urban environments in the world, but because camp structures were built for temporary use over the decades, the buildings have become overcrowded, critically substandard, and in many cases, life-threatening. So then the question is, who built the camps, if not UNRWA? Built the camps, sustained the camps. It gets even stranger. Technically, under international law, the right to grant refugee status is given by the host state. The world can't decide that someone's a refugee. They show up in a host state fleeing some conflict. The host state grants them refugee status, which gives them certain protections. In UNRWA's case, that definition, which is technically advisory, but in practice, because it's area of responsibility, that's what it calls those places where it can operate, which are, again, Lebanon, Syria, Jordan, West Bank, Gaza, and East Jerusalem. Um, in those areas, its, its definition is basically law. And so UNRWA comes in, defines people as refugees, keeps them refugees forever and ever, their kids, their grandkids, their great-grandkids, even if they get citizenship in their millions, and that creates real, you know, yes, UNRWA it didn't put them in those refugee camps. It didn't build those refugee camps. But it keeps them in those refugee camps in the sense that it is essentially a kind of welfare infrastructure that feeds them and sustains them in those refugee camps. It is an ideological argument, because it's an ideological definition of a refugee, not a real definition of a refugee, that tells the host countries you don't have to let them out. You don't have to integrate them. For decades and decades and for generations, Lebanon actually didn't allow Palestinians in those refugee camps in Lebanese soil, even when they're the grandchildren of 1948 refugees. Born in Lebanon, second generation born in Lebanese soil, didn't allow them to actually run many kinds of businesses and own real estate. And the point was, the idea it was not just the ideological idea that they're refugees forever until 1948 is reversed, until they're back inside Israel. Therefore, Israel stops being. It's actually the ideological argument. It's, it's actually the economic backbone that allows the host countries not to take care of them, not to integrate them. If you leave refugees behind, you know, for generations, right, in these camps, then they, what, starve, flee. They have no economy. You're literally in Lebanon forbidding them from most kinds of, of, of economic development. UNRWA feeds them so that you don't have that problem. And then they're stuck there being fed by UNRWA and with no solutions except the only acceptable solution in the ideology of these Arab countries around us, which is the return. And so UNRWA is a, by the way, that's basically what we saw in Gaza. The great problem of UNRWA in Gaza is not that Hamas deeply infested that, that organization on the ground. And, and, it, and you don't, you know, people who support 
the Palestinian cause, in some cases, support Hamas outright. They say Israel needs to prove beyond any shadow of doubt for us that UNRWA employees took part in October 7, not just for Israel to be convinced. But forget the 12 or 13 UNRWA employees that Israel says took part in October 7. You literally can't get a job in UNRWA. Those 13,000 employees on the ground, most of them are teachers. You can't get a job at UNRWA, that guaranteed salary, that, that money, that massive, that well over a billion dollars a year that UNRWA pumps into the Gazan economy. Hamas controls that. You can't get that job without Hamas approval. If Hamas doesn't want you to get that job and you take it anyway, you disappear. Hamas is not a, a liberal democracy, right? So Hamas controls anything of UNRWA it wants to control at any given time. And that is not something anyone serious has ever denied. You can't ever deny it. But it's not necessarily a complaint you can bring to UNRWA. If UNRWA is replaced by the World Food Program in Gaza right now, how long before the World Food Program on the ground, through sheer bullying and, and, and mafia practices, is taken over by Hamas as well? The problem with UNRWA specifically runs deeper. UNRWA for decades has paid for Palestinian um, you know, um, humanitarian, basically, to eat. It's built the schools. It's run the schools. It's paid the salaries of Gaza's thousands of teachers. And therefore, Hamas didn't have to. And so for 17 years in which Hamas ruled Gaza, all Hamas built, almost nothing else was built in Gaza except those tunnels, except this future war for which it was preparing almost every day that it ruled Gaza. And so UNRWA enabled Hamas not to be responsible after being elected in 2006, after claiming to be the government of Gaza, after claiming the right to tax Gazans, not to actually be responsible for the education of Gazans, for the sewage in Gaza, for actual, for the electric, for the actual taking care of actual Gaza. I just want to back up what you're saying with some of the figures that are found on the UNRWA site itself again. So in the Gaza Strip, 284 schools have been built, and that's opposed to, for example, in Lebanon, 63. In the Gaza Strip, UNRWA uh, contributes to the education of almost 300,000 students, whereas in Lebanon, it's 40,000, for example. Just the educational staff, as you just mentioned, it's 9,419 educational staff in the Gaza Strip, as opposed, again, to Lebanon, 1,800. And health staff, of course, is similar. It's almost 1,000 health workers in Gaza, whereas there are 300 in Lebanon. And just the total number of camps is actually something that's really interesting. Of that 58 that I cited earlier, eight are in the Gaza Strip, 10 in Jordan, 12 in Lebanon, 12 in Syria, and 19 in the West Bank, which I find just fascinating that there most the most camps, refugee camps, are in the West Bank, which is ostensibly under the Palestinian Authority. It's an astonishing thing. Most Gazans are technically refugees. This is something that Enat Wilf, a former member of Knesset, we both know, has written a book about the problem with UNRWA in the Israeli view. Most Gazans are UNRWA refugees, by the UNRWA definition of a refugee. But Gaza is, by the Palestinians' telling of their story, by the, in the Palestinian experience and Palestinian identity and what they call historic Palestine. Well, if it's historic Palestine, <laughs> how can most people living in this part of historic Palestine be refugees? It's not even just refugees in Jordan. Once you get citizenship of a place, you belong to it. You are no longer a refugee. In, it, it, you could be a Palestinian refugee in Palestine, by UNRWA's definition. 
and under Palestinian rule in the case of, of Gaza under Hamas. So, um, yes, UNRWA is an ideological definition of a refugee. And what do all these things have in common? And by the way, it's obviously the reason for this definition ultimately is to say that all Palestinians are refugees until they displace the Jews who displace them. Until their descendants displace the Jews who are the descendants of the Jews who displace them and all the Jews who came after. There's this Palestinian romantic sort of notion of returning to the old home of a country that contained a tenth of the population it contains today. There aren't any old homes. There are a tiny handful of old homes. Where are they coming back to? But they have this this romantic notion that they're going to push out millions of Jews and there'll be this Palestine liberated by this mass return of millions upon millions upon millions of people who grow in every generation, even if they have citizenship elsewhere. So it's an ideological idea that sustains the fantasy among Palestinians and sustains it in real terms, in hard financial and, and economic terms, that Israel can be removed, can be displaced. That 1948, never mind 1967, 1948 can be reversed. I just want to build on what you're saying about the romantic ideology of coming back to the houses. Of course, there are people who, until today, have the old keys of their former or their father's or their father's father's home, and some wear it around their neck, some keep it at some special place in their home. But, Chaviv, I want to ask you, if you take it into uh, Jewish terms, and you talk about, for example, Holocaust restitution, there are, of course, Jews who went back to their houses in, you know, Slovakia and Poland and got financial restitution for these homes in the countries, of course, that allow for this, which is not every country that I just mentioned, by the way. And so don't you think that it would behoove Israel to offer some kind of financial restitution to these people? The demand isn't restitution. Restitution is financial. It's for property. The demand is not restitution. Jews were mass robbed and then they were mass murdered under the Nazi um, empire in, in Europe, and often by locals. In other words, by, in Lithuania, often by Lithuanians, more often than by actual German Nazis. And so the Jewish demand for restitution has nothing, you, you can't take money for the lives, but it's a demand, and, and you can't take the, the land back. Um, the capital of Lithuania, uh, Vilnius, some significant swath of its most valuable real estate would be owed to Jews if there's a return, right of return, to the place you lived for hundreds and hundreds of years and were then kicked out of, in their case, actually mass murdered. But let's imagine merely kicked out, which is not merely, I'm not, I don't mean to minimize the Palestinian experience, but the Jewish experience of Europe was something in order, multiple orders of magnitude and vastly worse. The entire story of the Nakba, according to the entire experience of the Nakba, of the disaster that they see as the founding of Israel and their displacement in 1948, has a death toll of about 13,000, according to Palestinian historians. 13,000 people dying is a terrible thing. Hundreds of thousands being displaced is a terrible thing. But you can't compare it to, if you compare it to the Holocaust, you're engaging in a form of Holocaust denial. But even then, you cannot, you, there has never been a Jewish claim that restitution is for lives. You, nobody pays us for Jewish lives. But the specific things robbed from the Jews as a precursor, sometimes immediately after their mass murder, the property 
there have been claims of restitution for. The Palestinian demand is not for property. A Palestinian demand for property is, a, is, 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 I think, a fascinating debate. Israel can afford to pay. The international community can certainly afford to pay. And if this money goes to Palestinian descendants and helps them establish themselves and helps solve humanitarian crises and helps integrate them into their societies and helps, you know, in the case of uh, the majority of the Gazan population that is a refugee, in quotes, because they're living in Gaza for generations, but from other parts of the land, helps them rebuild Gaza and build Gaza into a better and stronger economy. Salamat, as they say in Arabic. Wonderful, let's do it. Why not? They're demanding return. Nobody claims for the Jews the right of return to Baghdad. The Jews are something like a fifth or a quarter of the population of Baghdad in 1930. Give me a fifth or a quarter of 1930 Baghdad, and then we can talk about restitution being about actual return to the place from which you fled or were kicked out of being a thing in international law. No Jews claim the right to get back Vilnius. Maybe the value of some property there. Right. So essentially what we're saying is that it's an ideology and there is no practical solution to appease an ideology. Shalom, dear listeners. This is Daniil Hartman. And I'm Yossi Klein Halevi. Together we host the podcast For Heaven's Sake from the Shalom Hartman Institute. These have been some of the most challenging days for me personally, for Israel, and for the Jewish people. And one of the ways in which I've gotten through this is that I found solace and meaning through discussions with my dear friend and study partner, Daniil Hartman. And I hope that the Times of Israel listeners will join us as we continue to tackle the pressing questions facing the Jewish people here at For Heaven's Sake, which has become the number one Judaism podcast. Well, Daniil, I'd also like to recommend the Identity Crisis podcast hosted by our colleague and friend Yehuda Kurtzer. It's a series of fantastic conversations with leading figures in Jewish life, thought, and culture. You know, for decades, the Hartman Institute has been a preeminent destination for Jewish ideas and learning. Now you can access Hartman Ideas on these chart-topping podcasts at shalomhartman.org forward slash podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. We'll privilege to help guide you through these challenging and even unsettling times. So let's talk about who is actually funding this UNRWA, which is, as we're saying, an ideology. And the top government funders, according to the UNRWA site, are USA, Germany, the European Union, Sweden, Norway, Japan, France, Saudi Arabia, Switzerland, and Turkey. And all of these countries are just the tip of the iceberg, as we say. UNRWA has been funded until these recent allegations by swaths of countries and swaths of organizations. Yeah, and I understand it, and I respect it, and I even admire it. And it clarifies for us the trap. Pro-Israel countries are the most important and massive funders of UNRWA. And the reason is, and this is really important because this is really deep and this is fundamental, and this is where what UNRWA is, how UNRWA is structured, this duality of humanitarian aid and ideology is disastrous for Palestinians. The reason the United States and Germany and Britain and countries like that fund massively UNRWA is that UNRWA is the only humanitarian game on the ground. And Palestinians desperately need this aid. 
especially now in the war. But let's pretend we're in October 1st and before the war. What are they doing? And the, the answer is they're literally run, helping to finance schools in Gaza. Now we know that taking that responsibility away from Hamas allowed Hamas to, to construct the battlefield. It allowed literally to turn Gaza into a battlefield to draw in a war with massive civilian casualties as its strategy. Okay, the Israelis were as unaware of that as the Americans, so I can't come to the Americans with complaints, or at least most Israelis. But the point is that UNRWA, the reason they're funding it is that this humanitarian aid need is real, and it's desperate, and it's not going anywhere. The evil that in, in UNRWA, there is one thing about UNRWA that I think is, is evil, and it's to some significant extent unintentional. But it is nevertheless disastrous. And that is this duality. It's two things at once. It's a humanitarian aid organization that we desperately need. And it's an ideological statement that is keeping the Palestinians trapped in a conflict and in a way of thinking about the conflict that prevents them from ever moving forward, building out a state, ending the actual war to destroy Israel, and therefore, which is, which is a brick wall into which they keep crashing. We can't have a humanitarian aid agency that isn't also this ideological argument. The Americans don't want Israel destroyed, but they do want this aid. And it's an enormous problem. Um, in the 1951 convention of the UN that established the other refugee agency, the UNHCR, has an article, Article 1D, reading here from a note on the UN website about Article 1D of the 1951 Refugee Convention. And it's how the 1951 Refugee Convention, which established the UNHCR, the other refugee organization that applies to everybody else in the world, applies to Palestinian refugees. And it says very simply, this convention shall not apply to persons who are at present receiving from organs or agencies of the United Nations other than the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, Protection or Assistance. In other words, as long as UNRWA exists, UNHCR can't come in. UNHCR cannot, by the convention itself, a decision of the UN General Assembly, UNRWA and its rules were set down by the General Assembly and therefore can only be removed by the General Assembly. Well, the Palestinians and the larger Arab and Muslim world have too many allies in the General Assembly for that vote to ever happen that removes UNRWA we're, or changes UNRWA in some fundamental way. We're stuck with an UNRWA that essentially holds the humanitarian aid hostage to the ideological argument that they're refugees forever. The article continues, or the note continues, when such protection or assistance has ceased for any reason, without the position of such persons being definitively settled in accordance with the relevant resolutions adopted by the General Assembly of the United Nations, these persons shall ipso facto be entitled to the benefits of this convention. Only when UNRWA stops helping somebody and does not define that person as someone under UNRWA's area of responsibility in, meaning both the geographic places where that we talked about and also that they're a Palestinian refugee, then UNHCR can come in. But UNRWA only ever expands the circle of people that it sees as having jurisdiction over. And as long as UNRWA says, and th again, there's two refugee agencies of the UN on earth. One is for everybody and one is for Palestinians. And the UN um, General Assembly decided in 1951 that the UN agency for everybody, is not allowed to help people being helped or defined as the prerogative of the Palestinian refugee. So it really is, to a startling extent, and, it, and think of the cruelty of it. 
you either are helped by UNRWA, with its absolutely unchangeable definition of refugee, that's an ideological statement that 1948 has to be reversed, or you're not helped. The Palestinians will starve or continue to prepare for Israel's destruction. That's the UNRWA legal construct. And that's why it's seen by Israelis as an enemy. Let's take a hypothetical here that suppose a Palestinian state was announced. Suppose a Palestinian state was formed just as the Biden doctrine is trying to do. Could UNRWA at that point cease to exist or would it still have to go through the General Assembly and be, I don't know, redefined? I think that if the Palestinians came to the General Assembly, and this was an Israeli, uh, part of the Israeli position for always in the peace talks. In other words, settling refugees for Palestinians is how many people can go back where? For the Israelis is settling the question, the definition, saying, okay, let's say we accept some humanitarian number. Let's say we accept some symbolic number. Let's say we apologize for 1948. And by the way, maybe the Arab world apologizes for kicking out as many Jews as were kicked as as Arabs who were kicked out of Palestine in 1948. Why don't we do that? Because we're all kumbaya making peace, right? Recognizing the other's narrative, legitimizing, etc. For Israelis, it would have to end UNRWA. And it would have to end not UNRWA, the humanitarian agency, but UNRWA, the ideology. And so that piece of UNRWA, of how you define, has to end. Why can't you establish a UN aid agency that just says, we're going to go you know, wherever we need to, maybe it's limited to the Middle East, and if somebody needs our help, we'll help them. And then you include these groups of people who need their help. When they no longer need their help, they go away, like a healthy aid agency. UNRWA is everything that has ever been criticized. You know, international aid is, is something that is deeply criticized because it often actually warps markets and warps the interests of host governments. It takes responsibility away from government, so it makes it harder to reform many places. It itself can get corrupted. If you walk into Gaza with a billion-dollar-a-year spigot, there's going to be a tussle for taking you over, and it's, you're going to sometimes just to survive, you're going to become corrupt. So the international aid generally is a problem. UNRWA is a distilling of the corrupting influences that international aid sometimes experiences and that we sometimes find in other places as well. I think in, in any future agreement with the Palestinian state, etc., the humanitarian side of UNRWA, sure, why not? The world needs to contribute. There's a lot of building to be done and development to be done in a future Palestine. But all of the ideological side, the definition of a refugee, the argument that it's a refugee. If there's a Palestinian state, there are no more Palestinian refugees. No such thing. How could there be? Where's there a Jewish refugee anywhere on this earth? None of them have gone back, but none of them are refugees. That would have to be, that is an Israeli demand over the years. I don't think there's a peace without it. Because as long as the ideological side of UNRWA exists, the story that the Palestinian ideological elites tell, that Israel will someday be crowbarred out of existence and removed, remains in force and remains something supported by the international community including by Israel's friends, not because they believe in that ideology, but because they're desperate to help the humanitarian crisis of, that the Palestinians are in. UNRWA it holds... Now, it's, it's worth just saying, in, in a sense, that's Hamas. What is Hamas's entire war strategy? Its entire war strategy, it has no other strategy, 
it, it's very similar to Al-Qaeda. Al-Qaeda did 9-11 to force the Americans to go to war with the Muslim world. This is their sense of what was supposed to happen. To force the Muslim world to wake up and go on a great unification and jihad. That's their vision of what was supposed to happen. That's why 9-11 made sense to them. Hamas essentially had a similar strategy, and it's a strategy sometimes pursued by guerrillas. Um, hit the Israelis, painfully, force the Israelis into an assault on Gaza, rally the Muslim world around them. That's a win. Are thousands of Gazans going to die? Absolutely. They, they, they dug a massive tunnel network just for Hamas. All civilians are stay on top. And in some places, Hamas actually at gunpoint forced uh, Palestinians who wanted to leave an area of fighting to stay. Wherever they could get away with it, they tried it. Hamas's entire strategy is to hold Palestinian humanitarian need hostage to ideology. And UNRWA, in its basic definition of a refugee and in its basic bylaws of, of its own founding, is exactly the same thing. We need to decouple aid to Palestinians with the idea that Israel is going to be removed. And then Israel has no complaints. Israel doesn't see this aid as... And then also UNRWA becomes a lot more independent of the very Palestinian ideological forces, like Hamas, who are the destruction of Palestine, who are the destruction of Palestinian politics and, and, and development and a political future. Hamas spent 17 years ruling Gaza, building absolutely nothing except the battlefield for this war. And so that decoupling is critical for the Palestinian future as much for, as for convincing the Israeli public that there is a future with the Palestinians. Khabib, a lot of food for thought here, and I really appreciate you taking the time at 11 p.m. plus at night from Australia to join me today for What Matters Now. Thanks, Amanda. Thanks for listening to What Matters Now, our weekly podcast conversation. Please check out another installment next week. This episode has been produced by The Podwaves. If you have questions about this or any other episode, please drop us an email to podcast at timesofisrael.com. Until next week. Shalom.